0: More and I'm a publisher for Whitecap Publications and I'm interviewing today Eric DeCarlo again. How are you doing, Eric? I'm good. Always a pleasure. It's a good pleasure to me too. Uh, now, how did publishing your first book change your process of writing? Just get right down to it. Oh, uh,
1: well. If we're going back through the archives, the very first novel I published was a ghostwriting gig that just kind of fell into my lap by way of the guy who used to handle Robert Asprin and all his. Um, oh, yes. Business dealings, a fellow named uh, Bill Fawcett, who was uh, kind of um, a sort of titan of the industry, but sort of low key. Rap- he's, he's Robert Aspirin, you say? What's that? Robert Aspirin, you say? Yeah, yeah, I, I knew him when I lived down in in the French Quarter and well, got to know him, and got introduced to uh, Bill Fawcett. I mean, he's he's sort of an inside baseball kind of uh, yep, yep. guy in the writing industry. I know the type. Yeah, he he was the guy who uh, suggested to Robert Silverberg that he write the novella um, Enter a Soldier, later Enter Another, which went on to win uh, the Hugo Award for best uh, novelette or novella. I think novelette of uh, that year but it was just kind of a conversation that uh, the two of them had. But anyway, um, somehow or another, I stumbled into this gig where I was going to ghostwrite a spy thriller for which I had absolutely no (laughs) qualification whatsoever. But, you know, I'm sitting there at dinner and there's Robert Asprin and there's my wife, maybe my wife-to-be at that point, I can't quite remember, and there's Bill Fawcett, and Fawcett says, hey, how would you like to, you know, take over this series? The main person we've got for this is bailing out, and we need book two. And I was like, oh, sure, I can do that. That'll be no problem at all. <laughs> uh, and, you know, I'm immediately, completely in over my head. Um <laughs> You know, this this is not my genre. This is not what I'm familiar with. I don't I don't know spy stuff. Um, I can't quite get into the exact details of what this is, so I'm going to talk kind of obliquely around it. But anyway, I gave it my best shot, and I put in as much of what I thought they wanted into it. And you know, eventually, you know, it uh, it it was released, and I'm sure it flew off the shelves and right onto the remainder table. <laughs> But it was it was my first gig. And, uh, and I fulfilled yeah. it. You know, I, I did not shirk at the um, overwhelming challenge that it was, where it was really, this is a no win situation. I'm not going to produce something that's really good out right. of this, but I'm, I'm going to give it my best shot. And it was a two book deal. So I did the first one and handed it in, and it's like, okay, that got published. And it's like, okay, maybe I learned a little bit something from this. Right. And so we did a second one. And this is also a period thing. This is set um, in the aftermath of World War II,
0: which is all I'm just... so? What's that? 1940s or so? Yeah,
1: late 40s. And this is also something I'm not really good at. I don't do historical fiction because I'm Either. just... I'm, I'm terrified of getting everything wrong. You know, it's like, yeah. oh, that... Thing didn't exist back then or people didn't use that phrase and it's just like I don't know that I you know I can't do that amount of research but anyway book one was kind of a disaster and then I did book two and I went at it in a much better way and the finished product was actually pretty good you know so there was a huge leap from book one which is just pure amateur all over the place to book two which was like this is pretty solidly constructed. And this has some decent. Way, way,
0: I have to tell you, Eric, that yes. um, one guy wrote in from our last interview and he said, that sounds like a fantastic book. Could I please get a um, first edition signed copy by the author? Oh, we're talking the cold? Yeah, the cold. Yeah. Damn. Wow. Oh, it's, it it it's going to be coming out in about a month. Uh. So it's really, really good. Yeah, I'm, I am looking forward to holding uh, the physical product in my hand. Oh, man, it's great. Like, great. Then, then I'll start to believe that all this is actually happening. <laughs> well, what was the best money you ever spent as a writer? Uh, uh,
1: uh, as in buying some sort of product that made me yep. happy? Yep. Say, a seminar you went to, or a book you read. No, screw all that. The best thing... I ever bought in my entire life the thing that made me the happiest and some of the some of this had to be uh from from writing money um was when dvd technology was still kind of getting off the ground and it was still sort of just becoming commercial yep and they released the original star trek episodes now this this is the old days you did not get the box sets where they'd be on you know five discs and you'd have oh you got you know dozens and dozens of episodes all in the box. What they did is they put out, um, like, a thin single-case DVD that would have two episodes on it. Really? It was from volume one to volume 40, and it was, you know, the the second pilot, which is uh, where no man has gone before, um, all the way to the very last episode of the third season, Turnabout Intruder. And then and then they dropped uh, The Cage, the original um wow. on, on disc 40. <laughs> um, but, you know, you're buying these episodes two at a time, so you got to buy 40 of these things because there was no other way these things Jesus. were available. And so over the course of months and months, I would save up my shekels and go buy one of these things. And it was like, it was Star Trek, but it was remastered, so it was better looking than it had ever been in my lifetime. And even more importantly, and this just blew me away, is uh it wasn't the syndicated versions. It wasn't the versions that were cut for time, because when Star Trek came out, you had less commercials on TV because in public was a little less susceptible to this, you know, horrible rampage of uh consumerism and advertising. Yeah. So I would see scenes that having watched Star Trek my entire life, I had never ever seen before. And it was such really it was such a wonder. And I just I absolutely loved buying these things. And and the pleasure goes on. I am literally re-watching them for the umpteenth time <laughs> as we speak over the last uh, over the last yep. couple of months. I'm I I just finished the horrible third season episode, The Mark of Gideon. Now, uh, The Way to Eden is probably coming up soon. Oh, it's gonna be gloriously awful. But wow. there were so many good episodes and there was so much to garner from that, that. That that was the thing that I bought in this lifetime that I have enjoyed the most. And as I was buying them, it was uh, an absolute thrill to me to pick these up. Cause it was like, oh, what's gonna be in this one that I've never you seen?
0: Know, that's a great answer. Now, what did you do with your first advance from writing? Oh, probably rent. I mean, <laughs> we were we were,
1: um, we were living in uh, New Orleans, which is which is where uh, Robert Asprin uh, spent his final final decades, I think. And uh, I'd met him there, but you know, we were me and my wife. We were you know scrabbling. We were working cruddy day jobs uh, you know we oh, yeah we were both work in the restaurant industry I worked at tower records you remember tower records yes I do them used to work at store 151 baby we had the best store in the whole chain because we would have like really cool um people would come through we had little feet came in and played one time uh I looked over from my counter I worked in the video department uh, because I knew movies. And it's like, hey, look, there's Nicolas Cage. I'm coming down the stairs one. Really? In the ba- break room. And it's like, hey, Queen Latifah's here. It was, <laughs> it was a great store, But, you know. It must have been a great experience, though. Oh, New Orleans is is an experience like nothing else. You, It is the closest you can get to leaving America while still being in America. Because it is like nothing The architecture, uh, the bar culture, which is unbelievable. (laughs) You know, everybody drinks, everybody smokes. Nobody is there for their health. (laughs) You know, the bars never close. There's no open container law. So you can say, I'd like that martini to go and just go walking down Bourbon Street with your plastic cups, sipping in public. It's a
0: place like no other. And of course, that must give you some really fantastic settings.
1: Oh, yeah. It it kind of bled into other things. Um, Oh, what's his name? George Alec Effinger, if I'm pronouncing his name correctly. He did a trio of books. Uh, the first one was great. They taper off rapidly after that. But his first one was um, When Gravity Fails. And it's a brilliant novel. And if you know that he lived in the French Quarter, you can see all the parallels of where this science fiction novel is set in this like you know, bizarre quarter of a futuristic city where everything is very tenuous and there's a lot of crime and violence, but there's also this incredible exoticness to the whole there's thing. There's beauty to it too, right? What's that? There's beauty to it too, right? Oh my God. It's 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 unbelievably beautiful. I mean, just the, you got the Spanish architecture, you got buildings that have been standing since the civil war. Uh, there's, you know, wrought iron balconies. And like I said, it, it is so exotic. It seems like you are not in the United States anymore. And you've got
0: the French influence too, right? What's that? You've got the French influence too, right?
1: Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. The, but you know, the architecture started off as a uh, Spanish, but yep, you know, yep. What do I know? But uh, it's it's just it's a world unto itself, and it's like we lived in the French Quarter, worked in the French Quarter, and there would be people we knew who had not been outside of this. Uh, eight block by 13 block district for years. You can, you know, you got all the food you could possibly ever want to eat, all the booze, all the, you know, naughty fun that you can possibly yep. scrounge up. Yep. You got books, you numbers, music, you know, it's just, it it was its own place. And uh, I've some of that stuff is like I've used in other things in bits and pieces when I'm trying to describe like some, deep space, distant alien locale, it's like, well, what's the weirdest place you ever been? Well, that would be New Orleans. So it's like, can mm-hmm. I, you know, find a little bit of the frequency and plug it into this thing and get that sense of right. wonder and exoticness and incredible danger? Is <laughs> it's a good, good setting for noir? Oh, yeah. Yeah. And in fact, uh, one of the things uh, Aspirin really wanted to do in his later days, was to do a mystery novel. And so he concocted this thing called uh, No Quarter, which uh, was... um, I can't remember remember who published it now. Um, But we um, put together a book, and eventually somebody else came in and uh, kind of sullied the waters a a little bit. I've never been able to reread it, just because I can't. But it was it was something aspirin really wanted to do. And, you know, our little circle around him really wanted him to write again, just because, you know, you could tell that he wanted to, but couldn't quite get it together. But, you know, we, so we did like, um, you know, a mystery one. And again, that's, you know, a little far afield, uh, from what, uh, my wheelhouse is, but, uh, we put something together that was reasonably decent, you know? Yep.
0: Now, what was your first experience with, you know language having power. Your first uh, book? Well,
1: it, books were always um, just unbelievably magical to me. Just um it was uh, from a really young age and uh you
0: know what one was of the first, books first book you read that experienced power though. I mean, who's the author? First. Well, there were
1: uh, I mean, there were just like cast off kind of things. Like there was this Lester Del Rey book that I had as a kid uh, called Rocket Jockey, (laughs) which I just thought was the greatest thing in the world, you know, and it's just, it's just, I read that book too, right? Yeah. It's just a (laughs) juvenile, but you know, when you're, when you're 10 and you're starting to think like, oh, I would really like to have something to do with this in the later part of my life. I would like to be able to, you know, do this. And then you read this and you, you start to reverse engineer it and you're like, well, what was he thinking when he wrote this paragraph? How did he conceive of this idea of, well, why does this thrill me so much? And how did, how does he manipulating the words so that I'm going along with it? Um, I think I said, said this already, but Bradbury was an early influence on me, although you can't find any of his influence in anything I've written, but he, he just, he electrified me. I was, you know, he did.
0: He, did. he electrified yeah. me too. And, yeah. Uh, Edgar Rice Burroughs, oddly yeah. enough, was a favorite of mine.
1: Yeah, I, I've I've never read him, but uh, you know, I, right, th- I thought I back. thought they did a nice job on John Carter. I don't know what people's beef was, why they thought that movie was so bad. <laughs> <laughs> it, was like, I it was like a it. perfectly serviceable
0: <laughs> two and a half star film. I like it, right? Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, now what's your favorite, underappreciated novel that you've written?
1: Oh, oh, oh. Oh, there are so many, but um, <laughs> let me give you a few. Um, this, this is stuff that I would not uh, say is universally great, but it's stuff that right. like reached me, which is you know really as a writer, that's what you're trying to do. You're trying to write for yep. that one person. If you can get that one person who can say, "Oh, this is this thing was just wonderful. It, it moved me." There was a writer. Uh, I think he passed away recently. His name was Robert Thurston, and oh, he wrote yeah. a book called Set of Wheels which was uh, just a near-future thing um, about a guy who wanted to have a Mustang, a 67 Mustang or something, oh something you know, make make like that. And it was just his, his life was falling apart, and all he wanted was a car. He just wanted a car. And he manages to get a hold of one, and it sends him off on an, an adventure, um, and he meets all sorts of people in this kind of car subculture yep. of the future. And I just thought it was Great. It was it was, I think, written in first person, present tense, which is just, you know, that's a flair for oh pretentious adolescent hooey. And maybe it is, but it reached me because, you know, I'm sure I was a pretentious adolescent. So it was it was it was ideal. It really it, worked for you, right? Yeah. And you know, the dialogue didn't even have quotation marks around it, which is something I've only done twice in anything I've ever written, because it's just like this. Weird literary affectation. Yep. It's like, in fact, uh, the original um, story that uh, became the cold when it was come the cold has no quotation marks in it. <laughs> I just thought it's just perfect for that for some reason. So wow, this, this guy, this guy did this, but th- there are there are so many just like um, <laughs> I'm looking at my bookcase over here and. Like, boy, what are the ones that nobody's ever read? You know, there's Paul Anderson's uh, Twilight World over there and, uh, right. you know, some of the more obscure Silverberg books that's n- nobody's ever heard of. You know, um, I mean, there's just know. there's these little gems that have, like, been guideposts on the way uh, to me it, in amongst all the, you know, oh, yeah, I read Dune. I read, you know. Um, The gods themselves, and you know, blah blah blah, all the you know, know, all the all the all the classics.
0: Well, how do you balance making demands on the reader with uh taking care of the reader? What's that balance, you know? Uh, oh, that that's a really good question. Um,
1: my answer to that is that I do not underestimate the reader, I presume that the reader is smart, that they have come to the table with uh. Thirst for not necessarily my work, but they just they just want to read. They want a good story, and right. I I believe that uh, especially with the, with this genre, with science fiction, fantasy, horror, there's an extra step you have to take. You for, you it's almost like you have to be willing to uh, submit to public humiliation because people are going to like oh what are you reading that for. <laughs> yeah. And you still have to like it. Uh, but you know there's also the extra leap of faith and the extra suspension of disbelief. That takes intelligence. That doesn't take stupidity. That isn't like selling out. That's like, you gotta do a little bit of the work before you even crack the cover. Right, that's so true. when the reader picks it up, I just assume that if I lay it down in a coherent manner, they're gonna pick it up. And I'm very careful about not being too coy about what i write like when i when i read a story and i'm two pages in and i have no idea what's going on even if the prose is good and it's like you know it's like what where is where is this physically what is happening so ages ago i came up with the idea that in my opening paragraph of just about everything i write i state my thesis this is what the story is going to be about and then i'll work from there and i can be as oblique and as artistic as i want to be but I just put it up front. Just say what it's going to be about and work from there. Have enough courage and um, uh, appreciation of your reader that you're willing to state right up front. And if they don't like it, then they can walk away at the end of that first paragraph. Right,
0: right. Right. That's a good practice. Now, what period of your life do you find you write most often about? Child, teenager, young adult, adult. Ah, well, we're all writing about ourselves, aren't we? Because we're all
1: narcissists. That's why I asked it. (laughs) Yeah, and we think we're so damn interesting in that our experiences are unique. And, you know, they aren't. And if you're smart enough, you know they aren't. But what you look for is just the universality of whatever you have been through. And try and mine that for the thing. I, uh, I seem to settle for, like going into middle age or late middle age right. for my characters. And I was doing that even, even when I was a kid, because, you know, really I had the weight of the world on me. It felt like, and I, I felt like I was older than I really was. And I felt, I felt right. weary all the time. It was just, life is just like, wow. Oh, this is just draining. I better write something that's more interesting than what I'm living through. And, that's but, fairly
0: interesting. Eric. Well, it, you know, we're,
1: narcissists and depressives aren't we um yep yeah (laughs) we are
0: yes we are
1: all of this is just therapy people none of this is art it's just we're just working (laughs) out issues you know but um i thought that that was you know to try to get to the heart of what interests me is um it almost it almost fits any age bracket um so i'm not you know it the The things I decided when I was young, most of those have borne true as I've gotten older. I've just refined my viewpoints and it's like, you know, the idea that um, like, you know, your family is not necessarily who you have to be stuck with for the rest of your life. These were just arbitrary people that you were thrown in with. They're like college roommates that you got assigned by a computer. If you don't like them get rid of them and just move on, you know, and I have not strayed from uh, that idea, but you can make your own families and your own, hesitant to use the word, but your own tribe um, of people around you uh, and you can pick and choose and you can pick nobody and you can back off and you can have like a very thin circle of people around you and still have a sense of
0: belonging. Now, another question, Uh, what's the most difficult thing for you, for you, about writing, um, characters of the opposite sex?
1: Oh, I, I don't find any, uh, I don't find any difficulty with that, but, uh, well, many writers do. That's why I yeah. asked. Oh, oh yeah, I agree. But I mean, for me, I just, I really don't differentiate between the genders. Right. I don't say, oh, this is a masculine trait or this is a feminine trait, right. you know, because, and especially these days, because that's all gone out the window and good bloody riddance to it. Absolutely. I love this, you know, I love this non-binary view of the world. And, you know, it's like, that's great. It's like, oh, yes, civilization is finally caught up to my thinking. I love this. This is wonderful. (laughs) But I don't, um, you know, I I grew up in San Francisco. Um, You know, gender was very fluid. I knew tons of, you know, queer people and the idea that oh this person you know this is this is a masculine viewpoint it's like I I don't really know what that means what are you talking about you know what is the, what they're just violent and sloppy I don't get it because I've known so many people uh, of a particular gender who have no traits that you would recognize as the classical you know 1950s Eisenhower era Hayes code nonsense. John W. Campbell stuff them in a box kind of you know characters. Yep. they're just it's all over the place. So you know writing from a, a a woman's viewpoint is it's nothing to me. It's like you know it's 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 all the same, especially
0: with um. What did you differentiate between characters like the males and the females? Do you differentiate between them? Well, yeah. Uh, to make it apparent to your audience. Well, just uh, just physically. I mean, I I'm not
1: again. I'm not coy about you know um, um, unless I'm deliberately doing something where the character has no gender, you know, or if I'm doing right right. right. If I'm doing an alien where it doesn't matter. Um, but I mean, I don't I don't keep the uh, audience deliberately in the dark about dark, anything. Right, I don't. Right. I, I don't like that. I don't believe in that unless you're right? doing like a shock ending. But, you know, what kind of shock ending are you going to do with gender? I mean, who
0: cares? <laughs> <You know? laughs> now, another question for you. Mm-hmm. What kind of research do you do? And how long do you spend researching a topic before you uh, break the book? Well, research. Or do you do your research first or do you do your research as you go along? It's no, a it's a little
1: more of the latter there, um, but okay. remember when I started out doing this, this was pre-internet. So if you wanted to do research, you had to really want to do your research, you know. Yep. You did. No um, doubt uh, about, about know, it. Yeah, you got to go to the library. You got to find out, you know, yeah. uh, this information. Um, but these days, I go mean, through if, tons of books. Yeah. Yeah, it's just you know, it's just onerous. It was it was you know unbelievable. That's why I would write. Now you in can place. type a line in the computer and get the results. Yeah. Stay at home. Yeah. You know, that's that was one of the reasons I, science fiction was so appealing to me. It's like, well, I don't need to know what's happening in the world now. I can just extrapolate into the future. And if it's wrong, then it's wrong because it's in the future and things have changed. Right. These days, though, if I've got something that actually needs research, if I need to know something, you just pull up an article... And or two or whatever. And, you know, try and get some some facts about the matter. Um and The thing is, is you don't need to or at least I don't I don't slather the stuff on. It's like, oh, I did this research and you, buddy boy, the reader, you are going to hear every single bit of it because I put in my time and you need to know why <laughs> this is why. No, 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 no. You just. You just catch the edge of it. You catch the glint off of the outline, and then the reader
0: will fill in the rest if you write properly. Now, what so do you think the advent of artificial intelligence will have on writing? For example, have you seen GPI? I've heard enough about it that it gives me, you know, chills me to my soul. It um, writes it's- normally in human language. Yeah. On any topic, right? Yeah, it's- so- it's pretty scary. I mean, think honestly, of artificial intelligence writing novels, for example.
1: Yeah, it seems like we're at the precipice um of something that could just change everything and could just wipe out my entire life of everything that I've wanted. Yep. And that's entirely possible. Well, I don't like know how possible it is, but the possibility actually exists finally.
0: Well, right now, that's... there's artificial intelligence that can draw with a canvas and mm-hmm. paint canvas use pastels of the canvas and make credible images and they can do computer drawings yeah it's getting so that artificial intelligence can't be distinguished from the humans like they have artificial intelligence that do voiceover work right Mm. interesting for audition right and um so i'm curious what effect do you think that will have on writing I, I think it could end it as we know
1: it. Um, I may be alarmist about that. oh well, um, no, you don't think you are, right? Yeah. Um, I, I don't know that that's likely, but the that the possibility exists, um, I'd be a fool not to acknowledge it. Um, right. It doesn't necessarily make me mad because it's just like, well, that's just the way it is. That's how things go. You know, technology comes along,
0: things change. Maybe it would um, help you write. Do you uh, see using a artificial intelligence, bouncing the questions off it, and getting answers for it, and incorporating it into your writing? I
1: can't see myself doing that at all because that's not what I'm in it for. I'm not. I'm not trying to get to a, a, a specific finished product. I'm trying right. to. I'll start out with something, and I'll work the idea as I'm working on it, and it will lead in its own way, in its own
0: logical or illogical it or ambiates, really intuitive way, it, which I it don't- It creates the need for self-expression, right?
1: Yeah, well, I don't or know that, a, that an or AI me. could um, have the intuitive leaps and the kind of, you know, artistic crescendos. I don't know that that can be ever replicated. What I would hope is that humankind would be able to differentiate, at least on some level, and have an appreciation that here's a human being, doing the work and making the stuff. And here's a calculated um, approximation
0: of it. Well, why I ask is uh, about 20 years ago, Mm -hmm. I was a chess player and uh, they came out with a little box called Boris, right? Oh, yeah. You could set it for 24 hours. And I thought, well, I played a five-minute game. So it lost. It lost with a half an hour game. It even lost when it ran 24 hours. And I thought... Computers will never, and they even had a guy that put up $10,000 that said a master could not be beat by a chess computer. Wow. But within that time, chess computers did beat the masters. In Mm -hmm. fact, Deep Blue, the IBM chess player, beat Mm -hmm. the world champion of chess. Oh, yeah, right. In about 20 years, that evolved to the point where now, every grandmaster uses a chess, a chess computer to check their moves, right? Hmm. So, yes, I wonder, yep. when I see the artist, I see the art with um, artificial intelligence, mm-hmm. it's really damn good now. And my yeah. friend was an artist, and he said the same thing 20 years ago. Well, at least it'll never compete in the world of art. So, it's well, evolved now. And so, yeah. I what you thought about... Uh, about artificial intelligence and writing. For example, they've got artificial intelligence that can write a novel now, and it's getting closer to humanness, right?
1: Yeah, yeah, it is.
0: Um,
1: and yet people still play chess. They yes, they do. Boots on the ground. Actually, with there's more boards.
0: people playing chess now. There's a fantastic number of people playing chess mm-hmm. that use computers now to check mm-hmm. their moves and everything. But sure. the chess world has expanded with computers. Cool. Yeah, and I think we'll see. find the same thing with writing, right? At first, yeah. every writer, every old art writer would go, God, I don't know. No, I won't use that. But I think we'll use it to expand our writing capabilities.
1: Oh, well, I mean, I never say never. Um, yep. you know, I, I was never gonna work on a computer. I was never gonna write anything on a computer. That's how <laughs> either, old I am and yep. how ridiculously myopic that view uh, was, which is just, you know, it's a stupid idea. That's an adolescent kind of <laughs> affectation, it's dumb. Um, I I don't see myself using a computer to uh, supplement beyond what I've said, using a computer for research purposes. But you're open to the possibility, things. right? Yeah, but but who knows? I mean, no. you know, I can't no. say, but you know, I still feel like each individual writer brings something to the game that, yes, you know, the computer might, the computer might have it, but the computer is going to have its own version. It's going to come up with that's its right. own that's right. ideas. And right. we're still, And we can play
0: between the two to come up with new ideas. I yeah. Guess, right. But now another that's question. So. Yes. What What is, the last question to do, um, what uh, does literary success look like to you?
1: Oh, it would, it, that's simple. It would just be, I don't have to do anything else. If, if I could, if yes. I, that's it. Cause that's I mean, the there's dream. nothing I want. I've got my Star Trek episodes. I don't need anything else in this world. <laughs> you know, I'm done. But if I didn't, if I didn't have to go out to a, uh, to a day job, which I don't particularly mind. Um, but if I could just, if it was just writing and. Um, Spend your time full-time writing, you would do well, it, right? Rent is paid. The bills are paid. There's a little home fund yeah. of, of cash around. It's, I agree. You know, I'm not aspiring to. Riches, I don't there's nothing I want. I don't care about any of this stuff. You know, I've got my movies to watch and I've got my books to read. And, you know, I'm good. Basically, just, I just want to be left just alone to be to, to, just to be able to write full time. Right. Oh, yeah. That, that would be fantastic. And I mean, you can write full time and be in the position that I am. But uh, it's not. You know, it it has to pay off. It has to constantly pay off, which is which yep. is the big bugaboo. Yes. You got to be good enough, or lucky enough, or established enough that everything you send out sells, and that is definitely not the case with me. Oh my God, it is not. Well, Eric, can we have another interview next weekend? Oh yeah, yeah, we can. All right. do this. I really, I'd really like this. Cool. Yeah. They're a fascinating interview. So I appreciate that. I, I enjoy talking to you quite a bit. This gets this gets it all out of my system every week.
0: <laughs> all right, Eric. Goodbye for now. Till next week. All right, till next week. Take care. Bye. Bye bye.